0: Welcome to the HC Insider Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the commodities sector and the people within it. I'm your host, Paul Chapman. Today we're talking Europe's energy transition and the policy frameworks behind it. Europe has set some of the most ambitious goals around net zero and electrification of transportation and industry. Yet it faces strong geopolitical competition both for the investments, technology, and know how, with acts such as the US IRA, but also accessing the critical metals it needs to transform its industry. Today, we're talking about the policy support behind that challenge, some of the complexity, and even the role of the commodity traders within it. Our guest is Julia Poliskanova. Julia is Senior Director of Vehicles and Supply Chain at Transport and Environment a European NGO and think tank. Julia's career has been in European policy and politics, including being an advisor to the EU Parliament, and has an energy masters in battery and fuel cells. As always, you can really support the show by please leaving a positive review on the platform you're listening on. It really does help expand our audience and thus enable us to continue to get great guests for the show. I hope you enjoy the episode. Julia, welcome to the show.
1: Hi, Paul. Thanks for having me.
0: So today we're talking about Europe and Europe's energy transition and the policies and thoughts around that. So I'm delighted to have this discussion in light of the Critical Raw Materials Act and all of the various legislation that's in the works. Can we start at the broad level? When we talk about the energy transition in Europe, can you help orientate us as to what that means and what's gone
1: on to date? Yes, absolutely. Europe is probably the continent with the most ambitious climate framework today in the world. So we already have a net zero goal by 2050. So it's a binding target all across the economy in Europe to really reduce emissions to zero or net zero in some cases. And more recently, Europe has also put in place a framework on a direction towards that 2050 goal, a framework to 2030. And within that framework, we now have a binding target to reduce all greenhouse gas emissions across the economy by 55% by 2030 and some of the key sectors there are of course renewables where we now have a goal of 45% of all energy to come from renewable sources by 2030 that's energy not just power it's a lot higher in the power sector and also we have a very recent goal agreed specifically for road transport where all new cars and new vans so that's small trucks for example in the US will have to be zero emission, largely electric from 2035. And we're currently discussing something similar for larger, heavier trucks. So this is a huge transformation that is underway. The framework is there, so the what is clear. Zero-emission technologies, be it renewables, solar, wind or electric vehicles, and battery storage. And the debate now is really quick moving to how to this in view of the global competition, how to do this with jobs and transition in mind, etc. etc. That's why we are, of course, talking to you today
0: okay so a couple of questions before we get there one relatively mundane but to get us all on the same page what does it mean to have a binding agreement who is bound by it what is that just in terms of enforcement in terms of all countries acting cohesively together where does is the uk following suit (laughs) and they're no longer (laughs) in europe but can you just help us understand the mechanics of it being a binding agreement how serious and how, how what's the penalty for transgression
1: Yes. So there's two things. The overarching laws with those CO2 targets, they are binding on the EU. So they're binding on the European institutions, including its member states. And that means that if Europe misses its targets, it can be taken to court, for example, and its member states can be taken to court if they do not comply or not in line with that. Now, I'm just talking about the EU. So the UK is not bound by those agreements, but the UK has its own really ambitious carbon budgets and at zero goals similarly. So, binding on the institutions, they can be taken to court. Now, the other laws that I mentioned, notably around electric vehicles, for example, that is actually a regulation that is binding on the industry. So, that regulation is specifically on car makers and van makers. And that means that if a car maker misses the targets, it's not just the 2035 target. There are progressive reduction targets for 2025, for 2030, before going to zero. So, all electric by 2035. So, if the car maker misses those goals, they are actually automatically, via the European Court of Justice, obliged to pay fines. And the fines are quite steep. So, there is quite a strong enforcement mechanism for those industry regulations in Europe.
0: Yeah, incredibly ambitious. And we're going to talk, as you say, about the how, because that's known mean lift, right, to achieve that for both manufacturers, but also for the continent as a whole. To my other question: Why is Europe leading the charge here with such ambitious goals compared to, say, the U.S. compared to China? What is the thought process behind that? Because there are also costs in terms of competition, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But what's what is the why here it, beyond perhaps just obviously the immediate and acute threat of climate change?
1: That's the thing. It's a really good question. I, I would say, if not Europe, to lead this, who else, right? We are actually doomed. If there is one continent where, due to politics, the politicians in place and the economics and the GDP, this is possible and that should go first, it's Europe, right? We are one of the most developed continents and the politics in Europe is, su- is such that people actually support this action. So all of this that I described for 2030 is under the agenda of the European Green Deal. And that was actually something that the European Commission president, when she was sworn to become the president back now in 2019, was publicly announcing and it was publicly supported. So a lot of people actually voted into the institutions, be it European Commission or European Parliament in 2019, were voted on the mandate of this climate action. So many people want it in Europe, politicians have been historically more open and progressive on climate action in Europe, and our economy and GDP means that we can actually afford to do that. And today, given that Europe has announced all this, because you're right, I mean, going full electric in, in, in the road sector is a huge transformation. And now Europe has announced that it. it almost has now an obligation to show to the rest of the world that it can do it. Because if it fails here, other politicians and other bigger economies with more emissions per capita probably will not not venture into this in the future, which is what we need, of course, for the global action on climate.
0: To say as well, Europe is one of the most industrialized economies or regions in the world, but also suffers relatively from a lack of raw materials particularly hydrocarbons that are fueling most of the other world's economies. There is also a strategic goal here as well to not become, move one from one dependency to another.
1: Absolutely. I think that's a really excellent excellent point. And I didn't mention that, of course, especially following the war in Ukraine, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, this sentiment is really acute here in Brussels, where I am based. For example, actually following that invasion, Europe has upped its target on renewables. Previously, we talked about 40%, and now we talk about 45%, for example, by 2030. So we sometimes call electrification also the freedom electrons, so to speak, because indeed that's something that we produce domestically, and that's something that can make us resilient as well.
0: Where does nuclear sit? Is that considered, where where does that sit in the, which side of the equation does that sit on?
1: There is no easy answer to that, I'm afraid, Paul. It's a really (laughs) difficult conversation in Brussels, and I think the answer will be dependent on who you ask. Generally speaking, within European energy policy, there is an agreement that the mix of energy technologies provided they're meeting the CO2 thresholds is actually up to member states. So countries can decide whether or not they support or not nuclear. Of course, France is very much in favour, whereas many other countries, be it Austria or Germany, Germany are a lot more reluctant to invest in nuclear. So that really depends. But there is, at European level, a really big conflict there that actually quite often delays a lot of the progress. For example, recently, we were really slow in agreeing the clean fuels mandate for aviation fuels because we couldn't really agree and figure out whether or not those fuels produced with nuclear can be be considered to be zero emission, and then they're not. However, on the other hand, we now have this net zero industry Act, or the Green 10 Act, Green Tech Act, which is part of this framework to, to respond to the US IRA. And there's a bit of a mixed approach where nuclear is in as, as a strategic technology, but it won't get subsidies. So this is sometimes this mixed approach, because we don't actually have one clear line on that as Europe.
0: Yeah, okay, great. And you've mentioned it now. So let's move on to the Net Zero Industrial Act and the CRM, the Critical Raw Materials Act. Staying with that Net Zero Industrial Act, that's somewhat seen as a direct response to the US IRA. What is the concern there, that the IRA is so competitive that Europe then faces their indigenous industry or autochthonous industry and renewables starting to decamp over there and investment being drawn to the U.S.?
1: As I said before, so we have this clear climate targets, right? And for a very long time, Europe had this very laissez-faire attitude to industrial policy. And first, China was cementing its lead in key technologies such as batteries and electric vehicles for decades. Today, China is the leading exporter, actually, of electric vehicles as, as well as batteries in the world. But I think the wake-up call for Europe really was the U.S. Inflation Reduction Act because they were just, I think... People in Europe, including myself, were amazed just how quickly the U.S. started to catch up. We had loads of plans on battery factories in Europe. We did some analysis last year where we showed that actually if all these plans come to fruition, Europe can be self-sufficient in batteries for electric cars, for storage by 2027. And then suddenly with U.S. IRA, we saw how quickly a lot of these plans and investments started to be shifted to the U.S. because, of course, the factories are not yet there right? And that the capital, the resources, the skills are limited. So indeed, the USRA was a wake-up call. So Europe now in February announced a package of measures that included regulations such as the Net Zero Industrial Act, but also other things like the global dimension, for example, skills, etc. If we look at the Net Zero Industry Act, there's many good things it does, and I'll highlight them in a second. But one thing that is really lacking is funding is that investment and of course that's what USIRA is about it's so bankable it's so simple it's so long term if i knew how i would build a battery factory in the us because of the subsidies that that i would be given so it's That's really still very much a gap in Europe, despite all these acts that the finance is not clearly there. But Net Zero Industry Act is interesting in that it's, for the first time, selects key technologies to focus, key green technologies. So the focus there is on batteries, on solar and wind, for example, so renewables, on heat pumps, on grid technologies, as well as electrolyzers for for green hydrogen. And selecting them also means that we can now focus, we can simplify permits for projects in the sectors we can focus in the future hopefully funding on them right so it's this quite important piece of law that selects the focus the priorities and then puts in place some of the key provisions on permitting for example to to help accelerate that in Europe
0: that's very clear thank you for that and then the CR let's move on to the critical raw materials act what is that where does it sit right now in the legislature and what's its
1: goal Yes. So Critical Raw Materials Act has been in the works for a while. But I think now with USIRH, it simply became a lot more urgent for Europe. When it comes to critical raw materials, we have three challenges in Europe to address. So we need to secure sufficient supply of these critical metals, like everyone else for all the technologies, we need to do this sustainably and responsibly. And that's really important from a European perspective. That's what's important, right? There's almost no Christmas dinner conversation with a glass of wine without someone mentioning cobalt in Congo, for example. And a third challenge is to also do this in a way which is diverse, right? So we actually do not rely on any one country for this supply, even if it's sufficient and even if it's sustainable. So the critical raw materials TRIES TO ADDRESS ALL OF THESE THREE CHALLENGES TO A CERTAIN DEGREE. I'LL HIGHLIGHT FOUR THINGS THAT ARE PROPOSED, WHICH I THINK ARE REALLY IMPORTANT FOR THE LISTENERS, AND THAT IS KEY PART OF THE DEBATE. Having said that, before I go there, just to stress that these are still European Commission proposals. They are now with the European Parliament and with European governments to amend so they can change substantially before they've be, they will be agreed as the final regulation, which should happen by the end of this year. So it's quite a fast procedure for Europe. So what does CRM Act do exactly? So, first of all, it actually selects and has a list of strategic raw materials. It's similar to critical raw materials. So you, of course, have things like lithium, nickel, manganese on it, but it also has some of the other things on the list, which maybe are not so critical in the academic definition, but are strategic for the future. Copper, for example, is a notable example here to add. Now as I said, it's not yet a final legislation. So there's a lot of push from different parts of the industry. And academia on what should be included. So a big push is to include aluminium on the list as well. It's not currently out, as well as things such as phosphorus. So it's still for LFP batteries, for example. So it still remains to be seen whether or not we will have those. But there is a list of on again, on what to focus. The second big pillar of this law is actually to put their aspirational EU-wide targets on self-sufficiency. This includes a target of 10%, of all those strategic metals extraction to actually come from Europe by 2030. It also includes a target of 40% of all the refining and processing of these very same strategic metals to be done in Europe also by 2030. And there's also a goal on recycling. So Europe wants at least 15% of its demand of critical raw materials to come from recycling. And an additional goal has been added around diversification. And that's that third challenge I mentioned around concentration on one single country. So the target states that not more than 65% of the supply of any of the strategic metals in any part of the value chain should come from one country, one third country outside of Europe by 2030. So these are the goals. The goals are not binding. And that leads me to the third pillar, important pillar of this proposal. And that is the framework of strategic projects. So the idea is we have all these goals they're not binding because it's hard to make them binding on somebody, but we will then be selecting projects throughout the value chain from extraction to processing, to recycling, to meet those goals that we identified for Europe. And that's actually probably the most tangible part of this proposal. So if there is a framework, a process to become a strategic project, and if you are a strategic project, either in Europe or also outside of Europe, for example, there can be a nickel mine in New Caledonia that can qualify, for example. So if you become that strategic project, you have lots of benefits. You have faster permitting, for example, you can have access to funding, you can get help with off-take agreements, etc. So really quite an important label there. And last thing to add, maybe more on the sustainability side, Critical Raw Materials Act as such does not propose any new environmental requirements. We have environmental requirements around water waste habitats, so biodiversity in Europe already, we have an international framework on sustainable due diligence that has now been discussed. But what Critical Raw Materials Act does, it cements them and has this really important balance. I think it's a really great trick that it does. It says, yes, to strategic projects. Yes, at the same time, you have to meet really key environmental criteria, but the process can go faster. So you have to meet environmental standards on water, on waste, on biodiversity, you have to have communities on board. But at the same time, you can be a lot faster in in showing compliance with those standards. And if after you've met all these requirements, people are still against and you are in the courts, the project will win and will go ahead. So the projects are given this overriding public interest status, which has proven to work in renewables, for example, and that's now being worked on. So this balance at, between the speed and strategic projects on the one hand and keeping the environmental safeguards on the others, on the other, in our view, is a really important part of this proposal.
0: Yeah. Okay, uh, we're going to come on to okay, the geopolitical competition for these resources and what Europe's going to have to offer places like Africa and so forth, when you have China on the one hand and the US on the other, and you know, there's some interesting headlines that come out of that already. Well, I want to zoom in for a minute on the 40% refining and processing in Europe by 2030. Because that to me, and we've done a number of episodes with Chris Berry and Simon Moores and uh, Henry Sanderson talking about how for the most part, 80% of the battery processing refining all the components that go into it sits in china and they've effectively had a 10-year head start on many of these and a lot of the actual know-how and skills sit there how is that a realistic goal I mean, how, how does the act address outside of these sort of incentives or at least fast tracking of various aspects does europe have the talent the skills to actually achieve that 40% target? I know you've got companies like Northvolt and so forth really pioneering. A lot of that know-how sits in China. Is that being addressed at all?
1: I think the short answer to your question is that if you look at this today, we don't have skills, capacity, expertise to do that. But I think that's why it's so important to set that goal, first of all, to make the direction clear, something aspirational. And then, yes, we need measures and support to get there. Some things are addressed in Critical Raw Materials Act. Some things are not. For example, there is a whole chapter on skills and actually developing those skills, having various skills, academies and critical metals is really important. It's an important pillar. And a lot of, a lot of different Bodies at European level are trying to do that. The second one to mention is actually when we look at this, but we only look at battery metals, so we only looked at lithium, nickel, and cobalt so far. We actually see that this 40% goal is reachable. Europe already does quite a bit of processing in nickel and cobalt in the north, right? In Scandinavia, in Finland, for example, with nickel. And for lithium, we have a lot of projects in the pipeline. Of course, they're all still projects, they need support. And I think that's 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 where really this industrial policy is needed to get to make this happen. But the potential is there to be self-sufficient in lithium potentially. And this is mostly because of some of the technological advancements there. For example, direct lithium extraction, right, from geothermal brines, which opens up many more resources to, to get lithium from. So the potential is there to process. On skills and expertise, we used to mine in Europe. We still mine. We have this great mining school, right, in the UK. So I think we can build the skills. But one thing that is not addressed in the Critical Materials Act or this framework at all is the investment part of this, the financing. It's not just the fact that America has all the skills. They also struggle with that, right? But what they're doing via US IRA, via these production credits, is that they're making it so attractive to build those capacities in the US. At the same time, in Europe, we have really high energy prices. And that is also making us uncompetitive because these processes are very capital intensive so in my view what is missing and what needs to be added is some sort of quite targeted critical metals fund to help with not just capex but OPEX of these projects to scale them up. Interestingly, just the other day, something similar was proposed in France. France proposed a critical metals fund, but it's just for French projects. We have a lot of potential outside of France, and I think it's important. Europe thinks as Europe. When we talk about processing, one last thing to add there, Paul, this is not just about the extraction side of it. It's also about recycling. The very same material recovery expertise are needed to properly recycle batteries, recover metals, and turn them into new batteries. So developing those skills and supporting them with funding, as I mentioned, is really no regrets for Europe also from a circularity perspective. So I hope we get our act together there in the future.
0: Yeah, we had Cling Systems on talking about battery recycling, which was fascinating and obviously quite a nascent industry. We just had Glencore announce they're getting into it. It's complicated and difficult, but also lots of opportunity there.
1: The HC Insider podcast is brought to you by HC Group, a retained search, intelligence, and advisory firm focused solely on the global energy and commodity sector, with six locations across Asia, Europe, and the Americas, and over 50 consultants. To find out more, go to our website, hcgroup.global. There, you can also sign up for our HC Insider content for more interviews and white papers on relevant trends and talent impacts in the commodities world.
0: One other question here, and I don't want to release my Hayakian bias on some of this stuff, but there is a sense that, obviously, this is go- this is somewhat picking winners. And if you look at, say, Germany, which has had a, a really robust chemicals industry and automotive industry. And that automotive industry has, for the most part, actually still very much focused on the internal combustion engine and all of the the other manufacturers, the ecosystem that surrounds a BMW or Volkswagen in terms of supplying parts. Not only are they somewhat, you know, arguably, they're behind on the technology side versus a Tesla and what we're seeing in China, but also EVs are incredibly simple vehicles compared to internal combustion engine vehicles in terms of number of parts. And so how, on the flip side, are we addressing concerns from industrial countries like Germany about what could be devastating to their economy in this transition?
1: that question is at the heart of this transition in Europe. And before we finally agreed this 2035 goal for cars to be zero emission that I mentioned, this was at the top of the debate and been discussed a lot. I think what is happening is a realization that going zero emission going electric is not just something we do in Europe or China. This is now global. Pretty much every country, many countries in the world, not maybe every, now has a strategy to go electric. So it's just a matter of our industry survival. The fact that they need to transition and they need to transform. The days of internal combustion engine have have been counted. They have ended. And I think that's something that has taken time for European industry to understand. But many of them actually have understood that. They have seen the writing on the wall. And some of the most vocal proponents and investors in electrification today are actually companies such as Volkswagen, Osterlantis, or Mercedes, for example. So the transition is happening because it's not about Europe or its policies. It's about global competition of our manufacturers. I would like to argue, and something that I think sometimes, in my views, wrongly said, is that we are going for battery electric because politicians pushed for this. Now, of course, politicians have pushed for cleaner transport. They have pushed for zero-emission technologies. But there is not one regulation in the world that is specifically designed to promote Teslas or to promote battery electric vehicles. Hydrogen cars, for example, have had exactly the same chance all along. So the reason why we are going so quickly battery electric as part of our climate and industrial agenda is because purely on economics and technology. It's the best technology. And if we are to keep jobs in our industry, not just today, but in the future, we have to transition, right? We used to have horses and then we went to petrol engines and horse carriage. Manufacturers were also complaining last century. This is just the transition. I come from Eastern Europe and I know this debate really wholeheartedly. My my dad actually lost a job in some manufacturing plant when Latvia joined the EU because those jobs were just completely uncompetitive and unnecessary necessary. But no one in Latvia questioned the need to go to and be closer to Europe, right? Because it always you know, something. its We need it. We just need it to support workers in the transition. And I think it's the same here. We need to go electric. We need to do it faster. But we need to support the transition. And that's why Europe and Germany in particular today spends so much money to reskill the workers, retool the factories, and attract manufacturers such as Northvolt to actually produce. And there we had some great news recently when Northwald actually confirmed that they will be building first, a factory, yeah. exactly, in Germany.
0: There is the inevitability about this, not least because obviously part of the sentiment driving this is that EVs are better user experiences for the most part, especially when you solve the charging infrastructure required, which places like Norway certainly have. Let's just, while we've got you, let's talk, so we're talking electric vehicles, but obviously are we talking, where do we stand, where is the thinking at the moment around battery electric vehicles versus hydrogen fuel cells. And I guess certainly from a technology standpoint, but also a sentiment standpoint, are both these still live, is hydrogen still a live viable option being pushed at? Or is that slowly moving into the rear view mirror as we look at efficacy and efficiency and really the emphasis is on BEVs?
1: So first of all, to say, when it comes to just purely policy frameworks and what's happening in Europe, hydrogen cars today have literally exactly the same incentives, right? So from that perspective, the race is still open. And if something happens in the next five or 10 years and something goes wrong on battery metals and hydrogen cars have really some kind of breakthrough in terms of cost and efficiency, we can still go 100% hydrogen cars, right? There's nothing that's stopping that So from that perspective. But I think it's just purely from economics and technology and efficiency as you said that it's now clear today at least from what we know today that the future when it comes to light duty transport so most cars, small trucks, vans, etc. It will be battery electric. The question is still a bit more open on trucks. What I see happening is that the vast majority of truck makers are also going battery electric. But the debate is how big is that niche for hydrogen trucks? Is it 10% or is it 30%? But it's not 50-50. So that's really the road transport. Where I do believe hydrogen, green hydrogen, has a huge role to play. It's in the overall decarbonization of the system. Things like cement or steel, for example. And if we look at transport, in in heavy transport, for example, I and we as Steni have done lots of analysis there see that actually when we look at things like long haul aviation or shipping that's where green hydrogen derived fuels synthetic kerosene for example or ammonia can really be that close to zero emission technology that has least impact and it's still feasible to propel those ve- those heavy vehicles for example we don't believe that there is role though in in those sectors for biofuels purely put for If we really look at sustainable biofuel stocks, they are really limited. You're not going to get far. You're going to maybe get your 1-2% of the needs of those fuels. And when we look at biofuels as such, beyond sustainable ones, they they simply produce more harm than they solve via deforestation and indirect land use change and CO2 emissions from that.
0: Yeah, interesting. We had Michael Bernard on talking about his belief that biofuels are going to be the only other significant contributor to decarbonizing transport alongside electrification and arguing that there would be sufficient and especially if you stop using them in sort of cars and so forth. But uh, yeah, again, another, as with all of this, right, there's a lot of it that sits, things are moving so quickly and a lot of this is still in the trial phase, if you'd like, and the I hope is that we all, we fail early, so that we can focus on those technologies that really are going to make a difference. But therein lies the challenge as well, right? From an investment standpoint, for the broader energy and commodities community that are listening to this, as Tonquist said back at the FT conference, it's both expensive, and it's very hard, and you're trying to pick technologies that might win, and the opportunity for disruption is very high. Let's, and I want to come back to that actually, but let's start with, let's move on to. The major challenge in some sense is that these critical materials, whichever the sort of the bucket ends up being, often sit outside Europe in resource rich countries, which are often in the global south or the developing in developing nations. And you're facing or there's and there's strong competition to acquire them. What is, what is the debate inside Europe about how is it going to incentivize New Caledonia or Tanzania to work with them versus the US, versus Russia and China, and particularly Chinese Belt and Road policy, all of the weight that goes with that?
1: Yes, that's an excellent question and that's part of so many debates right now here in Brussels and I think in many European capitals as well, such as Berlin. It's clear if you look at any map that Europe is never on the top in terms of metals. So it means that for the foreseeable future, as you said, we will be importing those materials and we are not alone. I agree with many who say that quest for these critical metals will be the geopolitical race of the 21st century. It will replace oil as the thing that everyone wants to get. Now. I think, and that's something that many people are now looking at, that Europe really needs to have some serious thinking about what is its USP. Right, coming to all those territories and countries where we are not alone. In in, in my view, there are at least two things that are part of our USP that we should use a lot more and a lot more strategically. One is the fact that all of these countries, resource-rich countries, a lot of them from Zimbabwe to Indonesia to Mexico, want to develop their own supply chain. They don't just want to be the mines of the world. They also want to process metals and even build batteries. And I think that's where Europe can really come not just with, with its demands for metals but more as a partner an equal partner and help with technology transfer knowledge skills to actually co-develop co-invest and build not just extraction but also processing in these countries so help these countries move up the value chain and we did talk before about the fact that Europe wants to process 40% of the metals it needs but it still means that 60% will come from elsewhere and given that this pie is growing the opportunity is really huge to help those countries develop which also helping our diversification agenda so it's not all done in one country for example in china the second thing that i think we sometimes are a bit shy to mention because we think it's some kind of bureaucratic hurdle but i think in this global dimension today is also important is our stance and our high practices around some of the environmental and social safeguards are doing things in many cases better in europe not always for example our waste legislation on around extraction tailings is not up for scratch it can be a lot better but generally we have high standards and it's in the dna of many european companies so building and bringing those high standards always consistently to resource rich countries is important at the end of the day when you are a person working at a mine for example in congo or chile you care and like anyone else in europe you want to have a fair wage you want your water nearby to be clean right and you want your community to be developing and that's something i think europe can bring we still have this idea of this european dream that i think we can export export elsewhere
0: just to jump in there very laudable And obviously something I'm sure all of the listeners share in terms of that is the ideal. But the problem that we face is that most of the countries that house these resources in high abundance are not democracies. The person at the mine is not essentially doesn't have a franchise to be involved in those decisions. And often high mindedness, often you're up against other nations or other actors who are purely incentivizing through the economics of the deal to the elite or the owners who actually will benefit right so that so all of those high ideals those important ideals i should say are somewhat dependent on the countries making those decisions having similar institutions similar organisation to Europe where those externalities and those other factors can be taken into account in the decision process. um, Just for this to be a success, it does also have to be those benefits have to be viscerally felt and the selection being made taking those into account.
1: That's a very fair point, And maybe I can c- come in here. So I fully understand that. And I also think we as Europeans should be a bit more strategic, less naive. For example, in the FTA with Chile, right? We actually abandoned some of our WTO language and eventually allowed local producers to be getting that lithium, for example, at lower prices. And I think this, these compromises are important. But I really want to stress two things. One, Every leader that I hear today, be Chile's president or Zimbabwe's president, are all talking about the fact that they want higher standards and development for their countries, and that they want to have higher value from these resources. And this is exactly what I talk about. That's what we can bring. And another really important point is we, and I think the only other continent that can do this is also the US, and I think we should work jointly with the US, actually. We should ha- form a stronger bias club to have a bigger cloud in these conversations. But we We as Europeans have the second largest consumer market in the world. Second largest for electric vehicles, for example. That's why so many Chinese companies want to go here. So if we cut out China and we directly go, for example, to Zimbabwe, and we say, look, we want to co-invest in mine with you and we have this huge market. So you have a return on your investment for 20 years. And this and these companies in in, in Europe will be buying this lithium for their vehicles for 20 years. That's a really good long term deal to that country. And because we do have stable institutions there and a stable market, people will know that we actually, we mean business and we mean this. The challenge is that there's very few European companies today that would actually agree to something for 10, 20 years because of a very different shareholder view in, in European or Western companies compared to the Chinese. Without going too much into detail into that, I think we need to think about that longer term perspective in our dealings with resource rich countries.
0: Bringing a knife to a gunfight comes to mind in some of these investments. But uh, okay, the other thing that actually Europe has, and I guess relevant to to, to our listeners, is one of the key competitive advantages that Europe has, albeit, okay, in Switzerland for the most part, and therefore not technically part of Europe. But you obviously have the world's commodity traders, for the most part, headquartered within continental Europe and these are the organizations who actually have the capacity and the capability to access many of these critical metals and have been doing so for a long time there's been a bit of a sense <clears throat> that a it's been quite an opaque world and also it's been one that has not necessarily been a source of i don't know what do you say pride or whatever for the for Europe itself and what is the, is there anything in the CRM or anything of, in Europe, a recognition of these are organizations that we can engage who are actually a competitive advantage for us in terms of getting to these minerals and actually any legislation around not necessarily how we can regulate them more, which is obviously in the works at the moment given the events last year, but really how can we support these organizations? Because they are, they do. They do share our values and they are focused on transparency. They've all made great strides towards that. I don't want to sound like I'm lobbying for them. But is there any kind of engagement with the commodity traders, with the recognition that that is a super competitive advantage that Europe has in terms of this act?
1: Actually, the short answer is that no, I'm not aware of any, but I do agree with you that this is actually an opportunity we have in Europe that we still haven't lost, that we're not actually, yeah, we're not exploiting. For example, maybe to give you one interesting fact, when we looked at lithium refining potential in Europe, we actually saw that one third of all the projects announced are in the UK, and we're like, why in the UK? It's actually probably for the similar reason you mentioned is because there is already their culture and headquarters of some of these mining companies and traders. So it's probably easier for them to secure feedstock of lithium globally, and then bring it into the UK and refine it. And if we had a better European cooperation, because we don't have gigafactories, battery gigafactories in the UK so much today, we can then take this refined lithium into Europe and produce a cut and batteries here. So I think that potential is there. We're not aware of that. So I think it's a good point you raise. And maybe it's something I can take back to my work in Brussels and see, yeah, if potential there exists.
0: I heard it here first on the HC Insider podcast. But that brings me to my final question, which I think is relevant to that, which is, you're, how, if someone listening today who's involved in these in various strands of these industries, How do they? how do you go about getting a voice in the European Parliament? How do you engage with NGOs such as yourself for the most part this is an industry that has shied away as I said shied away from too much engagement as bringing too much of a spotlight but now the stakes have changed the table has turned and there's lots of opportunity how do do you go about that engagement how do you go about actually getting in the mix and having your voice heard and how do they engage with NGOs like your own?
1: Yes. So before I answer your question, I want to just add something that I really wanted to bring up thinking of our conversation with you. I think it's really in this debate, it often comes up in geos. they want all these things that are not possible, and they're delaying things. And, and on the other hand, we just need these metals. I think I really would like to stress having been in this space now for a while that I see that pretty much most of technologies to do things with lower impact, we can't have zero impact mining, but we can improve and reduce the impact are there and practices on doing? Doing this properly, I also there. For example, we know how to engage with local communities and indigenous peoples. We have conventions, we just don't do it all the time. Similarly, on technologies, we have DLE on lithium, we have dry tailings method that if we use this all the time, the impact will be a lot lower. And what for me today is missing in terms of engagement from the mining and commodities community is consistent application of these things that are all available in terms of best available technology, so that some of the criticism that is out there reasonably doesn't have any more any basis right so if you do things to the best standards there's no critique and then you can really engage and I think that's where some of the disagreements today are between NGOs and industry now how do you go about engaging so actually the European institutions if you really talk about politicians the European Parliament is the most democratic and open institution in the world yes it's bureaucratic you need to understand the website and how to contact people but you can always have an appointment there is know this horrendous security system like in the UK Parliament for example you can go and meet and talk and there's so many fora today for example there's European Raw Materials Alliance and it's organizing very regular exchanges between everyone from industry to NGOs and there's many events and fora especially now that we're discussing the critical raw material sector open from a perspective NGOs it's the same we actually have a lot of already engagement and conversations with the industry what is really Lacking today in Brussels, and it's still there. And it's it's a bit of a cliche, but this silo approach. NGOs have an event and they talk to other NGOs. Industry has an event on raw materials and they talk to other people in the industry. They all agree among themselves, but between them there is a bit of a trench war, polarized views. So I would say, if you are in this space as a company and you are organizing anything around May Act, don't be scared. Invite NGOs and similarly to NGOs, invite people from a different perspective. So. We We can all talk it out because with new technologies and new practices, we're actually a lot closer to each other than we were in the past.
0: Yeah, and as Jeremy Shapiro said in the episode that went out recently, the European Council on Foreign Relations just talking about how actually... Yeah, even if you don't want to be engaging, at some point, you're going to have to, if the geopolitical competition carries on the way it is. I think this has been a fascinating conversation, I think an important one as well. And obviously, people can find you on LinkedIn and your organisation as a starting point for some some of this engagement. And I really want to thank you for your time. It's been fascinating.
1: Paul, thank you so much. It was such a pleasure talking to you and really great questions back at me as well. Thanks for that.
0: Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support the show, please give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. To find out more about HC Insider and HC Group, a search and advisory firm dedicated to the commodity markets, visit our website at www.hcgroup.global. There you can find out more about our services and our offices around the world. There you can also find more content, from interviews to insight pieces to more podcasts focused on the commodity value chains. Thanks again for listening.